You are welcome, Neil. Manufacturing Dissent since 1996. This is Hell Today on the show. What we call the transatlantic slave trade was in fact not as much a system of trade as it was a global war fought on several continents to sustain slavery in order to prop up the newfangled ideas of capitalism meant maintaining a strategy of terror that was rooted in racism and violence, the kind of racism and violence the market depended upon to survive when we understand the era of slavery as a time of international conflict, to enforce the wretched industry of commodifying human lives, turning them into investments and stripping them of their humanity, we view the United States to this day in an entirely new way. We'll learn all about the slave uprisings we were never taught about when we went to school. When we talk to historian, African studies and African-American studies scholar and award-winning writer, Vincent Brown, author of Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War. Vincent is the Charles Warren Professor of American History and Professor of Amer African and American hmm, African and African American Studies at Harvard University. He's also the director of History Design Studio at the Hutchins Center for African Research. You can find out more about that organization by going to historydesignstudio.com and Vincent's 2010 book, The Reaper's Garden: Death and Power in the World of Atlantic Slavery, won the James A. Raleigh Prize for Best Book Dealing with the History of Race Relations in the United States and the Merle Curti Award for Best Book in American Social and or American Intellectual History, both from the Organization of American Historians. In other words, Vincent writes a lot about slavery and knows a lot about slavery. You can find his online interactive map, Slave Revolt in Jamaica, 1760 to 1761, a cartographic narrative which has been viewed by over 87,000 users so far in 184 countries. You can find that online at revolt.axismaps.com. Revolt.axismaps.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live-streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, you didn't make it to office hours Friday night, so I imagine your weekend could have gone better. Uh, yeah, I got to say... Um... High under a broken light bulb is no way to be cutting uh, speaker wires. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Cutting speaker wires is a real annoying thing to do, and I can't believe that we still have to do it in this day and age. Is that because of the receiver that we're using? Uh, yeah, well, it's free, so I'm not going to complain too much. But, yeah, exactly. uh, if someone has some free wire cutters I could use instead of a, or a free light bulb I could use, uh, maybe that would help too. <laughs> hey, you're getting a little echoey over there. we got to do something about it in that place over there. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. And now, the news. During our most recent show here at thisishell.com last Thursday, sociologist Kari Marie Norgard was on to talk about her book, Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. 
Kari argues that we must recognize that the United States is the result of the continuing process of settler colonialism that breeds violence and racism that permeate our society, even to this day. And not only violence against one another, but the violence that we commit on a regular basis against nature, again, every day. When settlers came here, they saw an untouched virgin land, ready to be conquered and consumed. But what they couldn't see was the well-tended garden the land had been, tended by native culture and resource management strategies that had been intertwined with religion and religious ceremony. So when rapacious capitalism came to the continent with its European vanguard, it went to war not only with the natives over their land, but it started a religious war between natives' faith in the land and Europeans' faith in money. The fallout from that war's destructive power includes the toxic poisoning of our environment and climate change. Yes, our blind faith in money even allowed the introduction of new chemicals into the market that would actually bring about new deadly diseases never before seen in human history. And if you want to know more about how the Trump administration is actually promoting policies that will give kids cancer. Listen to our interview again from last week with The Intercept's Sharon Lerner on Trump's war on the war on cancer. At least that's what was the news on our show last week. What was the news to me, I guess? But that wasn't the news, the news that we're being told everyone is talking about which is weird because I haven't heard anyone talking about what they say we're talking about in the news. The news was a bunch of congressmen and women who have completely incompatible and irreconcilable views of the Trump administration argued whether President Trump should be impeached or not. And most Americans don't even know what being impeached means. Does that mean Trump is forced out of office? Do we ride him out of town on a rail? Can an impeached president still serve? If Trump is forced out of office, is President Pence any better? And am I really supposed to be cheering on John freaking Bolton, who said that if the UN secretary building in New York lost 10 stories, it wouldn't make a lot of difference while he was ambassador to the UN? saying that the building that he's actually in, if part of it was gone, eh, that wouldn't be so bad. That's a little tacky post 9-11, don't you think? And I'm supposed to be cheering for him to bring truth in the Trump impeachment trial? No, look, I don't think liberal institutions like the UN are the end-all and be-all of global human cooperation, but a position of antagonism in one of the few international negotiating bodies we do have is probably not going to do any of us on this planet any good at all. I played the Fox News Channel watching game this weekend when I turn on Fox, or any news outlet for that matter, to see how long I can last. I only got through about two minutes of impeachment coverage before they showed a graphic displaying that both Trump's and Joe Biden's campaign fundraising have increased with impeachment. Of course, they probably would be increasing at this point in their campaigns anyway. Not that we need any of that context to see if in 2016 there was the same bump in campaign donations. We weren't given any kind of context. So I'm really not sure what Fox News Channel was trying to say other than the impeachment is good for the bottom line of Joe Biden and Donald Trump's campaign. Whatever. 
not that it's a big deal, but the Trump administration is threatening the lives of children by deregulating cancer-causing chemicals. And a President Pence would do the same thing as would apparently any deregulation loving conservative. Why is it that all those right-wing anti-government conspiracy theories sound like they've been cooked up by big business propagandists? Hey, did you hear that science is based on research of patients whose identities are secret and therefore, as far as we know, all science based on medical patient research might be made up? And suddenly big chemicals polluting the planet with anything that makes a buck no matter the cost in human lives. Kobe Bryant is dead. Kobe was so rich that he could take a private helicopter to his kid's basketball game. Helicopter crashed, killing several people on board, including Kobe's teenage daughter. Most air crashes involve charter flights, and it's one of a number of reasons I would never take a chartered flight. Others being, I can't afford it, uh, impact on climate change, unnecessary contribution to air traffic. There's a lot better things to do with money than take you and your kid to a basketball game. I don't know much about Kobe. I do know that a lot of people here in Chicago were upset when people were saying that Kobe Bryant might be better than Michael Jordan. I do remember a lot of white people saying that it really ruined the purity of the game when Kobe Bryant went straight from high school into the NBA, despite the fact that Moses Malone had done it years earlier. And I'm starting to think that anytime I hear a white person talking about the purity of the game, I'm starting to get feelings of white supremacy. I also do know that when they were teammates, Kobe and Shaq hated each other, so does anyone know where Shaq was when the chopper went down? Shaq tweeted out his condolences, which is a good move if you're the one behind taking down the helicopter. The Grammys are fixed. The Grammys are fixed, which is weird because they suck. So do they suck because they were fixed? Because you'd figure you would fix the Grammys so they would actually be good and not suck, you know, be entertaining. But no, the music industry is so screwed up that when they put the fix in, they still come up with complete garbage. This is what the market does to art. It turns artistic expression into a commodity to be bought and sold and only to be appreciated long enough for you to complete your transaction when it's time to move on to the next best thing. Art should not be a competition. Capitalists tell us competition brings about motivation to innovate and produce better products. If that's the case, then why is so much music derivative and imitating whatever musical category within which it wishes to brand itself like, like a good little commodity? Art in this format is about picking favorites and making lists and giving awards and halls of fame. Art becomes a competition where participants are beautifully packaged as they beg for attention so they can attain wealth and fame. So is it any wonder that the Grammys are fixed when it is art corrupted by corporations? Somebody here in Chicago got the coronavirus, which led to a friend telling me that the city of Chicago had asked residents to not take mass transit this weekend in case the disease might spread. I have no idea if that's true because I didn't look it up. I didn't do any fact checking. I'm only mentioning it because I used it as an excuse to not go to the final days of the Andy Warhol show at the Art Institute of Chicago. Not that I have anything against Warhol other than him dying on April Fool's Day and it not being an April Fool's Day gag, which would have been awesome. It's just that I've been, I've seen Warhol retrospectives before. And now that I have finally have my weekends off for the first time since 1996 with our new daily schedule, I don't want to go see the last retrospective I saw before starting up this radio show 23 and a half years ago. So thanks person in Chicago who got coronavirus. If it were not for you this past weekend, we would not have finally taken down our Christmas tree. Meanwhile, 
I couldn't stop thinking all weekend about how I need to change my relationship with nature, how Kari Marie Norgard's writing on the Karak people and the Klamath Basin made me reassess the impact nature has on me and the destruction to that nature has on me as I live in its wasteland every day. I couldn't stop considering all the chemicals that have been deregulated for profit, killing children, especially poor children and children of color in neglected communities, causing who knows what neurological diseases, ruining lives before they even get started. Not that it made the news, because if it did, then everyone might finally realize this is hell. Coming up, the transatlantic slave trade was more accurately a transatlantic war of terror, racism, and violence that regularly included slave uprisings. We'll also have rotten history and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly... And sadly, Gnome's gone insane. This is hell. We are taught very little about slave uprisings in school here in the U.S., leading to plenty of misunderstandings of the slave trade that was really a war over people's lives. Here to help us get a better understanding of the history of slavery historian, African studies and African-American studies scholar and award-winning writer Vincent Brown is author of the new book, Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War. Welcome to This Is Hell, Vincent. Hi, Chuck. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you on the show. This is a very much a neglected topic, and I'm so glad that you are covering it. You write Wager, also known by the, his African name, Apongo, was a leader of the largest slave rebellion in the 18th century British Empire. But long before taking his part in that great Jamaican insurrection of 1760 to 1761, commonly called Tacky's Revolt, he had been on a remarkable odyssey. Apongo had been a military leader in West Africa during a period of imperial expansion and intensive warfare there. During this time, he had even been a notable guest of John Cope, a chief agent of uh, Cape Coast Castle, Britain's principal fort on the Gold Coast. Captured and sold at some point in the 1740s, Apongo became the property of Captain Arthur Forrest of HMS Wager, who renamed him for the Royal Navy warship. Now, last week we spoke with sociologist Carrie Marie Norgard. She was talking to us about her book, Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. Carrie lamented how little we are taught in schools about native cultures and society. We are also taught relatively little about black history, let alone the history of slavery or that of uh, even slave uprisings. Carrie argued that one aspect of what that leads to lack of understanding of native culture is native cultures working with the environment and not working in a capitalist way. Why are we not taught this history of slavery or slave uprisings? Why are we all not far more aware of black history in general, but more specifically, that African military leaders enslaved led the largest slave uprisings against the British Empire in the 18th century? What does our educational system seemingly not want us to know about that history? And I apologize for the length of the question. <laughs> no, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, first of all, I, I'm really happy to be on your show, and I appreciate the work that you and Alex are doing here, uh, especially to teach v people the value of things you can't put a price on. Uh, I admire that enormously. Um, 
And that's why I, I write about so much about slavery, um, because it is seen the ultimately the ultimate human exploitation to try and put a price on people uh, and their humanity. One of the reasons I think we don't know much about the history of the transatlantic slave trade or the history of slavery across the world, not only in the United States, is because the historical um, education system is so focused on national history. Uh, one of the first classes I ever taught was a summer school course when I was a graduate student at Duke University. And I had an older woman who was taking the course. And the first thing she said to me was, I didn't know they had slavery in any of these other places. I thought slavery was just something we had in the United States. So already we've got this kind of geographic focus, which assumes that everything that was important in world history must have happened here. That's the first problem. Uh, when we situate American slavery, U.S. slavery that people might know something about, on the larger canvas of the transatlantic slave trade and global history, we learn a lot of things. We learn, first of all, that the United States emerged from an interconnected global capitalist system um, that's not something that just started here, but was an outgrowth of empire and warfare and trade um, on a much larger scale than, we than we're used to. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, is to just get people thinking about the geopolitics of slavery. Um, thinking beyond relations between individual masters and slaves, beyond relations on an individual plantation in an individual state or colony or nation state, uh, and to this larger world system uh, that slavery was a fundamental part of. That's fascinating. And I had not written down this question before, but uh, it started to make me think about the compartmentalization of history via geography when in fact it's yeah. when in fact it's world history so what does it tell you about history when so many ways in which it's taught seems to think that history stops at our borders we know climate change doesn't stop at our borders you know why do we think history stops at our borders and what is that trying to reinforce we think history stops at our borders, and also we think geography stops at our borders often. Um, I remember once I, I looked at a, a fantastic map of Hurricane Sandy that the New York Times graphics people put up. And they had put up all of the deaths from Hurricane Sandy uh, as it came through the United States and the people that it, and the, the, the destruction that it wreaked, um, especially in New York City. But they had completely ignored the map of that hurricane as it went through the Caribbean. Right. As if suddenly the hurricane mattered when it hit the United States. And I, I never write letters to The New York Times, but I wrote that one letter to say, you know, you really can't judge an environmental phenomenon in national terms in that way. And yet here we are acting as if, you know, the wind matters when it crosses the boundaries of the United States. We do the same thing with history. Uh, we think in national terms. We think that, you know, history starts with 1776 or maybe 1619 now, and then moves forward within the national borders of what became the United States. But you know, even people who think about colonial history, most often when they think about the colonial history of North America, they think about the 13 colonies that became the United States. And then they think that Britain had 13 colonies in America, when in fact Britain had 26 colonies in North America, and by far the most profitable most militarily significant and most politically well-connected of them were in the Caribbean. And Jamaica was the most prominent of those colonies. When we think about the entire British empire, right, and what it meant and how the growth of British expansion in the Americas was contingent upon slavery with the Caribbean and Jamaica at its heart, it reorients the way we have to think about colonial America and then maybe reframes the way we think about the origin of the United States as well. 
to what extent would learning about the history of, say, slave uprisings challenge the views of American exceptionalism and innocence? Are we not taught the history of slavery because the U.S. cannot be exceptional or innocent when considering the history of slavery? I guess the bigger t- question is, is all history just some sort of nationalist propaganda? Well, I don't think so. There are lots of people writing history that's not nationalist propaganda. Um that situates the nation state, any nation state, including the United States, um, on a larger canvas, kind of emerging out of larger currents, thinks about, say, the U.S. in the world, or in my case, Jamaica in the world, or the U.K. in the world, um, and tries to think about those interconnections. So there certainly is a strain of of national history um, that tends toward national mythology um, that believes that or it teaches that history, for the most part, is about national peoplehood and the making of nation states, uh, and that what one has to understand about the past is the origins of who we are as a national people. That's just not the way I think about history and, and not the way I think is even the most important way to think about who nations are, what nations are, what nation states are, uh, how they matter in the world. Um, so. Do you do you think though that uh, that lack of knowledge of history of slavery does uh, reinforce our ideas of American exceptionalism and innocence? Can we have those kind of feelings or those kind of beliefs if we actually study and know the history of slavery in this country? Sure, I think it's a great question. Uh, one of the problems is kind of when we think about who we are as a people and we think about our national history, our national mythology, we think about the rise and progress of freedom. Um, and it's very hard to to reconcile that story of the rise and progress of freedom with the fact that by the mid-19th century, the United States was not only a beacon of freedom, it was also the largest slave society in the history of the world, comparable only maybe to the ancient Romans, if you go back that far, right? So those two stories don't sit easily with one another. And what the common solution is, is just to underplay, downplay, be quiet, about the fact that the United States was also the largest slave society in the history of the world, and that that had implications. So people who teach about the history of slavery are kind of always up against these deeply held and comforting national myths about the United States um, that don't sit easily with the history we want to tell. You point out that taking advantage of Britain's seven years war against its European opponents, Wager, and more than a thousand other enslaved black people on the island engaged in a series of uprisings, which began on April 7, 1760, and continued until October of the next year. Over those 18 months, the rebels managed to kill 60 whites and destroy tens of thousands of pounds worth of property during the suppression of the revolt and the repression that followed. Over 500 black men and women were killed in battle, executed, or driven to suicide. Another 500 were transported from the island for life. Considering that disproportionate level of deadly violence that victimized blacks on the island, is it fair to call the uprising a failure? And if not, in what ways or ways was Nataki's revolt a success? Is it not the revolt itself, that the up, but the uprising's legacy that made it a success? I think ultimately the uprising's legacy it was extremely important, but not well known. Um, first of all, it's not usually considered as part of the Seven Years' War, right? We think of it as a slave revolt when historians write about it, for the most part, and they kind of class it with slave revolts and excise it from the larger narratives of the Seven Years' War. 
And for people who kind of know the history of colonial America or thought about it at all, they know the Seven Years' War was this massive global war between Europe, between the UK and France and Spain and other uh, uh, European rivals that really set the stage for the American Revolution because the Britain spent so much money fighting the war, they felt they had to consolidate the empire, uh, reorganize its administration, raise taxes on the colonies. Uh, and those kinds of uh, imperial administrative reforms are what the 13, the 13 colonies in North America ultimately revolted against, in part. But this revolt in Jamaica was one of the largest battles of the Seven Years' War, but nowhere considered one of the major battles of the Seven Years' War, despite the fact that soldiers and sailors and Marines who fought in the more famous campaigns in Quebec or in Senegal or in Martinique and Guadeloupe sailed directly to Jamaica afterwards to suppress this revolt. So what I wanted to do was integrate this revolt into that larger history of colonial warfare, and by doing so, then play out what its effects were not only on British policymaking, but also on a longer tradition of black freedom struggle and slave revolt within Jamaica with implications for how we think about it elsewhere. So if you give me just one more minute uh, to answer your question more directly, ultimately this, re this revolt was a failure in terms of its inability to take the island of Jamaica from the British, even though it threatened to do exactly that. They did not make Jamaica an independent colony as the 13 colonies in, in North America would achieve in 1783, and they did not create an independent state as the slave rebels in Saint French Saint-Domingue would do when they created Haiti in 1804. And yet, these rebels actually helped to stimulate that British reform effort. One of the reasons the British wanted to uh, reorganize the empire was because Tacky's revolt had been so expensive and so threatening. These rebels also helped to convince people that colonial slavery and the repression that it took to enslave people uh, on this scale was not something a lot of British people wanted to participate in. It helped to stimulate an emerging uh, anti-slavery consciousness in Britain. Now, the other thing that it did, even more immediately, is it scared people about the implications of importing all of these people from Africa who may have had experience in their own wars back home into the colonies. And so you find uh, in Virginia, in Pennsylvania, in other places, people trying to pass new import duties on the African slave trade. And those early efforts to regulate the transatlantic slave trade as a security measure, as an anti-immigration measure, um, were also helpful in stimulating some of the campaigns that ultimately uh, resulted in the end of the, the banning of the transatlantic slave trade by 1807 in Britain and 1808 in the United States. So could there have been a Haiti in 1804 if there wasn't Tacky's revolt in 1760, 1761? Well, I don't necessarily like to play those kind of counterfactual games because history is so complicated that, you know, a lot of other things could have happened if this didn't happen. But I'll say this. Um, we know that some of the early revolts leaders in, in Saint-Domingue in what became Haiti had been in Jamaica. And in Jamaica, they probably had heard stories or even had experience with Jamaican slave revolts. So we know that the kind of tradition of revolt uh, that obtained in Jamaica was probably carried on through some of those exiles who left Jamaica and went to places like um, Virginia, some of them went, uh, went to places like Saint-Domingue, uh, went to places like what was then British Honduras, what's now Belize, where there wasn't in fact, there was in fact a revolt uh, in Belize 
just a couple years after Tacky's revolt. So we know that people carried that tradition of revolt with them around the Atlantic world. And as news spread, people were inspired by it. So I think we can say with, with some certainty that Tacky's revolt certainly did inspire people to revolt who might not otherwise have revolted. You write that Apongo's Atlantic Odyssey spans the martial geography of Atlantic slavery, highlighting the entanglement of African and European empires with the massive forced migrations of the 18th century and suggesting a new way to understand slave insurrection. Rather than a two-sided conflict between masters and slaves, the 1760 to 1761 Jamaican revolt was the volatile admixture of many journeys and military campaigns. How dependent was that system of slavery on war? Because when I was reading that, reading your book, what I kept thinking about was how there was a kind of military-industrial complex at the time, and yes. it seems that that military-industrial complex that was dominating capitalism from the very beginning is one that uh, slavery depended upon. They needed to have that military-industrial complex in order to have slavery. Okay, that's a crucial point. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, I try to begin the book with this larger world of warfare and accumulation that I call war's empire. Um, and what I'm trying to get at there is the way in which you know the new kind of ways of financing military expansion that you had in Britain from the from the the late 17th century to the early 18th century um, fed directly into the buildup of military armaments and the sale of weapons into West Africa. So what had been um, smaller kind of rivalries between West African polities became larger in scale and more deadly, and as a consequence, wound up producing more instability, more dislocation, more slaves for the export to the Europeans and the colonial plantations, which helped Europe to accumulate profits and wealth from colonial expansion. So I'm trying to kind of draw together that whole system of accumulation in capitalism in the 18th century with warfare very much at its heart. Now, that warfare has consequences, which is oftentimes you're, they, were, they were enslaving people who had military experience in West Africa, in part because of the expansion of warfare that Europe helped to foment. And those people did not forget their military experience when they came out to colonial plantations. Sometimes they regrouped, often former enemies coming together because they spoke similar languages or worshiped similar deities uh, or recognized similar kinds of political authority vis-a-vis -vis other Africans. And they staged revolts against plantation society, which had their knock on reverberation. So it really goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about remapping our understanding of how history works and where it happens, trying to integrate the history of West African state formation and conflict and warfare with the history of European military expansion, with the history of the growth of America, seeing how all of those currents eddy in the slave revolt of 1760 to 1761 through particular event individuals that you can track even um, that indicate how those processes work together. And that's really what I'm trying to get across more than anything else is the sense that history works on a broader canvas than we're accustomed to viewing. The era of the slave trade is often said to have lasted 400 years, four centuries. Was the global slave war, you know, if, if it was a 400-year war, what is the legacy of those four centuries of war making on the former slaveholding and trading Europe and Europeans? Did four centuries of a global war over slavery have any impact on Europe's use of war, willingness to conduct war post-slavery? Because all I kept thinking about when I was reading your book is, is the legacy of 
slavery, global warfare? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think um, the legacy of warfare in the 17th and 18th century was slavery, <laughs> and the reverse can also be said to be true. Um, one of the things I'm really trying to get at is to kind of reverse the, the common formulation. You know, we talk, often talk about how, you know, if we don't have justice, we can't have peace. And I think on, uh, at a broader level, what I'm also saying here is if we don't have peace, we can't have justice. Um, that a lot of the human misery and exploitation that we're seeing is a result of militarism and global warfare, uh, which has, of course, continued. We've got kind of, you know, the United States economy is, I mean, we spend more money on armaments um, than I think the top other kind of nine military budgets in the world combined. I was born in the late 1960s, uh, so during the height of the Vietnam War, and I can't tell you a five-year period in my life where the United States hasn't been at war somewhere, where the United States military hasn't been abroad in some country killing somebody my entire life. So we talk now about endless wars since September 11, 2001, but in my 50-something years, I can't name a a period of peace, a sustained period of peace in the United States. Why are we talking more about that? Why is there such an anemic anti-war movement in the country right now? Um, that to me seems to be one of the bigger problems. We often think about the history of slavery as being part of the history of racism and the civil rights struggle, which it certainly is, right? Um, but even Martin Luther King Jr. talked about racism, poverty, and warfare as the three big evils that had to be combated. We talk a lot about racism and the struggle against racism as part of King's legacy. We talk a little bit on the left about King's struggle against poverty. We don't talk nearly enough, often enough about King's anti-war activism. And I want to integrate the history of slavery into our understanding of warfare and its effects on society and the kind of damage that it does to, to human dignity. Slavery is a type of warfare. That's really a really fascinating point that you make in your book. We are speaking with historian, African studies, and African-American studies scholar and award-winning writer Vincent Brown, author of Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War. You quote the former slave and veteran of the Seven Years' War, Gustavus Vasa, now commonly known by his African name, which I'm going to butcher, Olado Ekiano. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, famously defined slavery itself as a perpetual state of war uh, to the slaveholders. Ekiano asked, are you not hourly in dread of an insurrection? It was not a rhetorical question since the early years of Jamaica's slave society. Slaveholders <laughs> and others can often considered the enslaved as irreconcilable and yet intestine enemies subjected to the colonists' will only by the rule of the whip, the prospect of slave rebellion was a perennial anxiety, a war always the more terrible, one slaveholder wrote, by how much there is no quarter given to it. It sounds like the terror of slavery was begetting more terror only within the lives and minds of the slaveholders themselves. Does this undermine the stereotype of anti-antebellum uh, Southern gentility and replace it with one of antebellum terror of the institution of slavery and constant fear of slave uprising? Is the romantic idea of a mannered, civilized Southern culture during slavery embraced by those who embrace that history of the South a myth? And in reality, it was just a culture of terror and fear. 
Well, I think you, I think you know the answer to your question. <laughs> it was absolutely a myth um, designed to cover over a culture of terror and fear. What a lot Equiano said was that when you make people slaves, you compel them to live with you in a state of war. And then he went on to quote John Milton in uh, Paradise Lost, saying that no peace is given to us in slave but custody severe and stripes and arbitrary punishment inflicted. What peace can we return? Right. So ultimately, Equiano was saying, and I think he was saying quite correctly, that slavery itself is a state of war. Uh, and the only way that one could subject people to the absolute will of a master was through massive amounts of violence. There is no slavery without violence, right? The idea that you can control the will of another person requires inordinate amount, amounts of violence and terror. That has always been the case with slavery. And I think, you know, by taking Equiano's description of slavery as a state of war itself seriously, not so much as a metaphor, not just as a rhetorical statement, but really exploring slave rebellion as it, through military history, we can see how a lot of those myths that came out to justify slavery, that came up to say, you know, this is really a familiar relationship. This is a kind of, you know, it's a courtly manner uh, that, that where people understand all of their kind of mutual rights and responsibilities was a myth specifically to cover over that violence. So how much does our misunderstanding of slavery, our miseducation or lack of education, complete lack of knowledge of the history of slavery, how much does that bring about, what, what role does that play in any success that white supremacy currently is having here in the United States? Does a misunderstanding, a lack of education about slavery spread white supremacy? Hmm. So I think that's certainly true, that uh, the more people know about our actual history, as opposed to just kind of the comforting myths that we like to tell ourselves about our history, um, would at least give us a kind of common understanding of what American people have been through in our, in our journey together, white and black and other. Um, at the same time, I think that, you know, one of the biggest problems we face is not just... Um, the lack of inclusion, not just the undermining of civil rights for some stigmatized people, especially black people, um, but also anti-black militarism. And so I think one of the problems with racism is that it's a larger outgrowth of, of militarism in the United States, directed at particular kinds of people. And one of the legacies of slavery is that you had generations and generations and generations of militaristic violence directed at particular stigmatized people, Native Americans uh, and then African Americans as well. And the hangover from that is still with us. The idea that black people's lives are less valued, right? And you could just go into the court system to see this play out, right? If, um, if, if a black person is murdered by another black person, that sentence that's meted out will be, by the courts will be much less severe than if a white person is murdered by a black person. You can actually just see how lives are valued by looking at the kinds of sentences that are meted out in court punishments. Um, that, I think, is an outgrowth of a kind of, a kind of daily quotidian warfare that was carried on over generations in the United States uh, that we haven't, really, we haven't really come to terms with. 
Uh, you write that as much uh, as it grew out of plantation slavery's inherent everyday violence, it was sustained by imperial militarism and broader transformations of commerce, governance, and cultural belonging. It was more than a local outburst, more than a continuation of prior experience, and it involved a far larger and more diverse cast of players than studies of resistance normally feature. It was the kind of event best narrated as a war story. Is slavery then best understood as not a simple aspect of the era, era uh, one of many qualities, but the entire era does in, did institutional slavery dominate the culture where it existed? Was it part of everyday life and understanding of everyday life? I think it, it depends on where you're talking about. So um, in a place like Massachusetts, which had slavery during the colonial era, and whose economy was in part dependent on the products of slave labor uh, grown in the Caribbean, um, slavery mattered, but it wasn't it wasn't part of everyday life to the same degree that it that it was in a place like Virginia or South Carolina or especially Jamaica and Barbados. So the the character of the society was different when you had you know in Jamaica a population that was 90% enslaved with you know, more than half of the population in the mid-18th century born in Africa and having had experience often with the kind of turmoil that was caused by the slave trade. That was quite a different situation than you had in a place like Massachusetts. So I think you want to be careful to draw distinctions between those kinds of ter territories. So you have, on the one hand, you know, societies with slaves, which are not the same thing as slave societies where every institution is underpinned by that master-slave relationship. At the same time, even a place like Massachusetts in the colonial era, which doesn't have nearly as many slaves as a Virginia or a South Carolina or a Jamaica, is connected with the slave economy of the British Empire. The British Empire itself in that period is deriving its greatest profits uh, and fighting its most you know, fiercest naval campaigns in the Caribbean over the profits gleaned from slavery. So I think... These things are connected, but you do want to say, look, not every institution in every place is equally implicated with the worst excesses of the slave system, even if they're connected. You write slave revolt was race war to the extent that it concerned relations between masters and their vassals. From the 15th century onwards, skin color was used as a primary index of social status, with blackness becoming increasingly synonymous with slavery over time. From the 15th century onward, is there any indication that this was a change from the past? Was skin color as a primary index of social status new, or has the world always been as racist as it was when the slave trade began? Because as we all know, slavery is just part of the normal existence of human beings. Well, okay, so one of the ways I like to talk about this is to remind people that the word slave actually comes from Slav, because Slavic peoples were enslaved uh, in part of the Black Sea trade, and even Slavic peoples were, were growing sugar in the Mediterranean before Europeans turned to enslaving Africans as the sugar plantation system stretched out through the Mediterranean into the Atlantic world and, and into the Americas, right? And the stigmatization of Slavic peoples um, remain far after uh, Slavic peoples were no longer being enslaved in the kind of numbers that they were. So what this is to say is that like these stigmas attached to people of low social status in a society can remain for some time, but they don't transcend time. They are not forever. These stigmas do change, uh, and even if there may generally be 
throughout human history ways of legitimating exploitation uh, that can take their form in the recognition of, of physical difference, like skin color, uh, like other human features. But it's also been religion. It's also been language. Um, you know, one of the things that, 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 that I try to, to situate this slave revolt in is the kind of massive waves of white-on-white -white violence through the 18th century in these European wars, right? That, you know, Europeans are fighting religious wars against each other. And they're incredibly brutal and violent religious wars. And they're, they're doing terrible things to each other, heinous things to each other that they would then reserve for black people by the 19th century. But they were doing these things to each other through the 17th and 18th century. We're emerging from, you know, generations and generations of European warfare. And then they're subjecting Africans to the same kind of kind of tactics. So, you know, I, I never like to say that, you know, racism is at the root of all human suffering. It is an outgrowth of the kinds of exploitative and violent practices that human beings subject each other to. And racism is one of those things that helps to legitimate and justify those practices over time. You write, enslaved Africans did indeed have their own designs on Jamaica's landscape, guided by their experiences of enslavement and their understanding of the possibilities for escape. They envisioned moving freely through the terrain that lay beyond the slave master's control, seeing in the forests and mountains a world apart from the plains and valleys stamped with agricultural estates, where communities of runaways might turn natural dangers to their defensive advantage. Did slaves in Jamaica envision escaping capitalism and returning to a non-capitalist, pre-capitalist state and a resource management and political economic system that they left behind? So I do believe so. I believe that when you when you look at the maroon communities, these, these communities of uh, uh, often former slaves who had escaped and found their own communities in the mountains uh, or in swamps, uh, you don't find them generally engaging in the same kind of you know, highly regimented proto-industrial capitalist uh, plantation agriculture that you find the Europeans engage again. So whether or not they would have returned to something they knew before, they certainly did not mean to propagate, say, the sugar industry. Um, and I think that there's, there's an indication there that, again, capitalism is not inevitable, that it's not a natural human system. It is historical. And it has always been contested, even by people who are, who are subject to it in the harshest way. In the harshest way. You point out that slaves differed from and resembled each other along multiple axes, including not only their languages, spiritual beliefs and practices, ideas for gender relations and contingent political allegiances, but also the ways in which they were subject to the prerogatives of slaveholders, the social roles required by the labor regime and the operations of colonial security. Slaves, then, Africans are in no way monolithic. We had a discussion about this yeah. last year with Cedric Johnson. It was, I think, our most downloaded discussion of the year last year. To what degree was that diversity an obstacle to organizing and working together to come up with a strategy for rebellion? To what extent was that eventually an, an asset? Can that diversity be a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Was it what, what it was tearing apart Africa? What, uh, what do we miss in our understanding of Africa when we don't see it as a, a very diverse place that was having their own wars? Instead, we see it as just one monolithic Africa. That's great. I mean, I think when you, when you understand 
the history of slavery only as the history of kind of white people and black people in opposition, you forget that that's not the only way to divide human beings, that human beings are divided along many axes, right? Um, and they're, they're situated historically in a lot of different ways. And what I always like to do is not assume that there is one way of organizing human society uh, or human belonging that is the natural and inevitable way, like say class is the real way of organizing people versus race, but to look at how people actually use different axes of difference to organize themselves when they do it. And what I'm trying to do with that is really understand the kinds of coalitions people are making for the purpose of pursuing their political objectives. And in this case, for fighting military campaigns against each other. Sometimes that's military campaigns between people in Africa of different polities. Sometimes that's military campaigns between black people who are enslaved in Jamaica. Sometimes, as in the case of Taki's revolt, that's a military campaign against the enslavers. And how you fight those campaigns is going to be dependent not only on who you think you belong with, how you identify with others, but also what access you have to different kinds of um, material benefits within the society. So even in a slave society, there are differences among the people who are enslaved so that someone like Tacky or someone like Wager, who you began the show with, those guys are drivers. Now they're enslaved, but they have some privileges and some authority given to them by masters over other enslaved people. And so there's a difference, you, could, you might call a class difference, uh, within this, within, among slaves between those drivers and those people underneath them. At the same time, the authority given to them, right, over the other slaves by the slave owners is authority that can be used to lead the other enslaved people in revolts against the plantation masters uh, when that becomes operative. So what I'm trying to do here is take seriously the politics of the enslaved themselves, not assume that we know already from the condition of slavery how those politics have to work out, but see those people actually struggling politically to make the kinds of coalitions that they're going to need to fight the plantation masters, to fight colonial slavery. And to go directly to your question, yes, that's really difficult work. Uh, people don't necessarily always find themselves in alliance with each other when they're commonly subject to the oppression of another. They often fight between themselves more than they fight uh, their oppressors. Um, but that's a struggle that has to be waged, and I don't think it can be waged without knowing that it's, it's not something incidental to political struggle. It's something that's fundamental to it. Deciding that we're going to get together as workers as opposed to as black people or get together as men as opposed to as men and women um, is fundamental to our political struggle. So what people often call identity politics, but I, I tend to think of more as the politics of identification and belonging is fundamental to all kinds of other political struggles. And erasing that kind of political agency of the people within the continent of Africa also leads to, you know, racist, white supremacist narratives of slavery, things like uh, Africans were complicit in the slave trade, so that, therefore, it's, you know, in any way that white supremacists can try to find some sort of imagined uh, complicity within the slave trade uh, with Africans, then they'll try to find that and they'll try to latch onto it. And erasing that political agency would seem 
team to do that very effectively, right? So one of the things um, that happened with the the, <clears throat> the anti-slavery movement as it really began to kind of gather force in the later 18th century is that they began to celebrate a perfect victim, an African innocent, uh, the icon of an enslaved person on bended knee begging to be recognized as a man and a brother. And one of the things that that slaveholders kind of shot back at was, well, look at these Africans, right? They're, they're not like us. They're not perfectly innocent. Um, these people would be enslaved by each other had we not enslaved them. And in fact, we're saving them, right, from the barbarism of Africa. So they begin to create all of these kind of racist myths about Africa and black people to combat the abolitionist image. And the truth is that neither image perfectly described what was happening in Africa or describe black people, right? Nobody is a perfect innocent. People have their own politics, their own struggles, their own, their own conflicts, right? And Africans did as well. Black people did as well, even when they were enslaved. At the same time, that can't characterize every freedom struggle. And black people were struggling for freedom within Africa struggling for freedom during the transatlantic slave trade and struggling for freedom during slavery and afterwards, right, against whoever was holding them down, be they black or be they white. Um, so it's, there's a tricky kind of uh, uh, needle you have to thread when you want to recognize black political agency in all its forms, at the same time validating and understanding that freedom struggle in a way that does not in any way kind of let European colonial imperialists off the hook or let slaveholders off the hook, right? So, you know, they were right to the extent that, that black people were struggling with each other and with them, but wrong to think that somehow that legitimated slavery, that legitimated oppression. I have a simple rule, which is I try to identify um, who is struggling for human dignity and human flourishing. Those are the people I want to valorize in history. Those are the people I want to valorize in the present. And the people who are working against them are the enemies. One last question for you, Vincent. We've been speaking with historian, historian African Studies and African-American Studies scholar and award-winning writer Vincent Brown, author of Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War. One last question for you, Vincent, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You point out that warfare migrates. This has never been more apparent than in the era when the violence of imperial expansion and enslavement transformed Europe, Africa, and the Americas as they interacted across the Atlantic Ocean. European imperial conflicts extended the dominion of capitalist agriculture. Was the war for slavery then a war for capitalism? And how do we understand capitalism differently when we understand that it started with a war for slavery? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we understand is that war itself is, is fundamental to capitalist expansion. Um, and this may not have just been a kind of phase of war capitalism, as my colleague Sven Beckert puts it, but something intrinsic to the nature of capitalist expansion, to uh, 
create territories, to conquer and create territories for the accumulation of wealth for, for the conquerors. Uh, that's always been fundamental to, to capitalist expansion. I am talking about a particularly aggressive phase of it. But as I said earlier, Chuck, um, I, don't, I don't know a period in kind of late capitalism in my lifetime when the, the leading capitalist country in the world, the United States, has not been at war somewhere. Uh, that's a sobering thought to think that somehow the history that I'm writing in the 18th century, a history of imperial expansion, brutal exploitation, slavery, and terror, uh, is a history that continues with the growth and continuation of capitalism in the present. Vincent, thank you so much for being on our show this week. Vincent's online interactive map, Slave Revolt in Jamaica, 1760 to 1761. A cartographic narrative can be found online at revolt.axismaps.com. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. This is a fascinating book, Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war. Thanks so much for being on our show this week. Chuck, I appreciate it. Thank you. Have All a great day. Right. All right, take care. This is not the media, you can tell, because we just talked about a slave revolt and how capitalism was started by slavery. This is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on January 29th, 1863, 150 years, 157 years ago this Wednesday, U.S. Army Colonel Patrick Edward Connor led a brutal attack on a Shoshone village at Bear River near Beaver Creek in what is now the set settler-occupied southeastern corner of the state of Idaho near the border with Utah. For years, while settlers had been encroaching on the region, competing with indigenous people for food, game, and other resources. Encroaching, sure, let's go with encroaching. Invading would be good. But encroaching, I guess that's good enough. The establishment of the California and Oregon trails brought white migrants and miners through the area at an increasing pace. Faced with starvation, the Shoshone had begun resorting to livestock theft and other crimes in their effort to sur survive. And I'm betting white settlers didn't view taking Shoshone land as a crime. But they sure as hell saw stealing livestock as an unforgivable offense. Probably a capital offense. With the outbreak of the Civil War back east, tensions had risen farther with conflicts between settlers and natives turning violent. After a white miner was killed on the Montana Trail, Colonel Connor made up his mind to exterminate the Shoshone back during America's glorious frontier days when U.S. generals were allowed to commit genocide whenever they wanted. Colonel Connor led several hundred men into a valley of the Bear River where they caught the Shoshone village defenders by surprise and exchanged gunfire with them until the Shoshone ran out of ammunition. The battle became a route in which some three to five hundred Shoshone men, women, and children were massacred. That is, executed, murdered, you know, war crimes. Connor later received honors and a promotion because war crimes, and went on to lead other deadly attacks on Native Americans. The site of the Bear River Massacre has since been declared a historic landmark. It is now owned by the Shoshone descendants, who are developing it as a public memorial. I don't know, man. If we start remembering all of the horrible acts of genocide that were committed in order for the United States of America to not only exist but become a global superpower, we start remembering all of our horrible rotten history honoring it memorializing, commemorating the real deadly history that got us here in the first place, 
you're definitely going to piss off a lot of white people. In Rotten History, January 30th, 1948, 72 years ago this Thursday, at Birla House in New Delhi, India, the 78-year-old political leader, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, better known by the honorific name Mahatma Gandhi, was working his way through a crowd of well-wishers during a, or toward a prayer meeting when a young man named Natharam Godse stepped out of the crowd, and young men stepping out of a crowd near a beloved political figure never ends well in rotten history. Gandhi's companions thought at first that Godse was an overzealous fan who wanted to touch the Mahatma, and they told him to step aside, but Godse pulled out a 9mm Beretta automatic pistol and put three shots into Gandhi. He then apparently tried to kill himself, Godse that is, with a fourth shot, but was quickly grabbed and beaten by police around him. Meanwhile, others carried away Gandhi, who within minutes was dead. Godse, fanatical Hindu nationalist, would later explain in court that he had killed Gandhi because after India's recent independence from the British Empire, he believed Gandhi had been too generous to the Muslims who demanded the carving out of a separate Muslim state to be called Pakistan. Oh yeah, the British divided and conquered India partly by putting or pitting uh, Hindus and Muslims against one another, which is why we have all that ethnic violence today in India. Totally forgot it's all the British Empire's fault. Goza received a death sentence and was executed the following year. Meanwhile, the lingering legacy of the British Empire will be centuries of violence into the future and well beyond the lives of everyone who's listening to my voice right now. See? We told you. This is Hell. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesdays live? This is Hell streaming at 10 a.m. on thisishell.com. Uh, Peter Ward will be on to talk about his book, The Consequential Frontier, Challenging the Privatization of Space. And that is going to be this week's prize for the person who has the uh, best answer to this week's question from Hell. Are you revealing that tomorrow morning at the beginning of the show or today? Or? Uh, yeah, because i got to think about it first. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. I want to thank Vincent Brown, author of Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war, for being on this morning's show. Also, thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for, thank, for helping us out with Rotten History. Thanks to Alex. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>